The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He was born the year after the death of Julius Caesar in a small town outside of Rome, and he died in exile in a city on the Black Sea. In between, he became one of the most celebrated poets in Augustan Rome. We know him today as Ovid, and his major works, including The Art of Love and Metamorphoses, have been influencing poets for 2,000 years. Who was Ovid? What did he write? And how did he go from being the poetic prince of a flourishing empire to a lonely old man, banished by the emperor himself, longing to return to his beloved Rome? The story of Ovid, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. We have Ovid today. My friends, we have Ovid. What a wild story this is. A lot of speculation around this man. And yet there's something about his poetry that makes us think we know him, too. He lives and breathes, even today. We'll have all of that for you in just a few minutes. Things are sailing along here at the Jack Wilson Studios. Still under quarantine. My goodness, it's unbelievable how long this is lasting. What a failure that has kept us indoors. Moods are up and moods are down. The open-endedness of all of this is brutal. But we will continue, and we hope you are doing the same. We've got some treats in store for you today. Mike Palindrome is not today. <laughs> I shouldn't have said today. We do have some treats in store for you today. But what I meant to say is we've got some treats in store for you in future shows. Mike Palindrome is working on that Infinite Jest episode that you've all been clamoring for. I am so grateful he's here. He's part of this endeavor. That he's doing the David Foster Wallace episodes since I cannot even get through a single sentence. So maybe it takes a president like Mike to truly appreciate the DFW. I know it's not for me. So we will have that episode for you soon. Infinite Jest. Apparently it's getting closer and closer. I get some updates from Mike. <laughs> oh, good luck, Mike. Meanwhile... I'm still on the two-a-week episode schedule, which frankly is a little draining, but I'm doing my best. I'm glad you're on board for it. We have an exciting month of Thursdays here in September with our Forgotten Women of Literature theme. Last week, we did uh, an Edwana from ancient Mesopotamia. This week should be good, too. We jump from ancient Mesopotamia to a Chinese poet. I think you will. Enjoy it. And I think you'll enjoy today's stop in ancient Rome, Ovid, who sometimes doesn't feel so ancient. Sometimes he does. He's saturated in myth in a way that makes me feel like a bit of an outsider. I think to truly appreciate some of Ovid, you might need to be a great aficionado of myths. If you are such a person already, you are in luck. Ovid is there for you. And if you'd like to be one, well, I guess you're also in luck. You can either learn the myths and turn to Ovid, or you can explore the myths as you explore Ovid. I go hot and cold with myths. Sometimes I love diving in, I get a lot out of it. Other times I feel a little bit blocked out. But when we're talking about myths with Ovid, we're talking about Paris and Helen, Echo and Narcissus, Pyramus and Thisbe, Hercules, Midas, Bacchus, so on. There's also an Ovid that isn't just dependent on those myths. There's the art of love and the cure for love and his writings about himself and his exile. And there's the figure of Ovid himself and the mystery surrounding his exile. That's worth exploring, too. And there's the influence. All the many poets and writers he's influenced since he was first writing. We'll touch on all of that today, and then you can go out and get some Ovid and have some fun. He's the poet people turn to for fun, someone said. I think they were talking about classics students. When you're learning your Greek and Latin, you read Virgil and Horace, and then you turn to Ovid for fun. He's like a friend 
you might have today. We'll read one of his poems that I think is very fresh, and I'm not the only one who thought that. Shakespeare and his contemporaries thought that, too. You do get the sense that Ovid kind of jumps off the page when, as he did when he was rediscovered by those Elizabethans, not that they were the first or the only ones to rediscover Ovid. He's sort of, he's the kind of poet who gets rediscovered a lot. We won't claim to rediscover him, but we will cover him in our own small way after some listener emails, which we will have for you after this. Grownups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. email. Subject, The Arrival of the Queen of Sheba. Dear Mr. Wilson, I just learned that the opening theme of the history of literature is The Arrival of the Queen of Sheba by George Friedrich Handel. This is an excellent choice for setting the listener's expectations for the civilized discussion to follow. I wondered what it would sound like with a different theme. You could open the show with some remarks about, say, Alice Monroe, and then get to the part where you say the name of the podcast, and then we hear the opening bars of Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple. <laughs> Please forgive me if someone has already asked this question. I haven't heard all the episodes yet. B, Evanston, Illinois. Well, B, thank you very much for your email. You are the very first person to suggest that maybe we open our Alice Monroe episode with Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple. I'm glad you like our theme, which I tried very hard to get just right to suit the tone of the show that I had in mind. A civilized discussion, as you say, yes, indeed. Most of the time, anyway. And something upbeat, which I need for all these four-in-the-morning wake-up calls. Coffee can only do so much. Sometimes you need a little additional pep. Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple. <laughs> oh my, is that what you hear when you think of Alice Monroe? I confess I have a different set of music in mind, or I would have for her. And since you haven't listened to all the episodes, I know, I guess, looking back at your email, maybe you were wondering if someone had asked this question before, but I'm just going to say, since you haven't heard all of the episodes, that yes, sometimes I use the theme. I try to include the theme in every single episode. I also try to find music that suits the author or the work. That's one of the things I like to do here at the podcast. Sometimes that's because of feel. I choose a, a work for the right, it has the right feel, the right mood, the right tone. And sometimes there's a bit more of a connection than that. The song refers to the author or the work, or the author has referred to the song. The lyrics have some connection. I usually don't make too much of it. I just let it stand there to let you, the listener, draw that connection or not, as you'd like. 
But thank you for the email. I actually don't think it will affect how I read Alice Monroe. In fact, <laughs> quite positive that it won't. But it might make me smile the next time I hear Deep Purple. Subject, further greetings from New Zealand. Hi, Jack. Thank you for your reply. It is great to hear from you, and I hope you and your family are doing well in these trying times. For some context around my translation episode suggestion, I read Madame Bovary last year and was very surprised to see the many blurbs on the front and back covers and inside the front cover. We're all praising the translation by Lydia Davis. I have never seen another translator attract such praise. Clearly, I have underappreciated the role they play in bringing a foreign language novel to life, which leads me to a question which I hope you are happy to answer. Your wonderful and heartfelt episode on the Brothers Karamazov has persuaded me to read that novel soon. But can you recommend an English-language version? My Russian is somewhat lacking, i.e. non-existent. Thanks in advance, and best wishes. Marshall. Well, Marshall, thank you for the suggestion. I wanted to mention this suggestion in particular, giving Marshall a second bite at the apple here, because it gets requested a lot. I don't, uh, an episode on translations and emails and other forms of communication asking me which translation to read. I don't really have great recommendations for translations. I don't think. I think Google is probably your friend here. Dive into some experts and see what they say. We also, I, uh, not sure I'm going to do an episode on translations. I have a lot to say. I have a lot of thoughts, but I'm not sure how new or interesting any of my thoughts are. We will see. So I will tell you, however, what I do when I'm looking for a translation. I look for one thing, readability. The thing I hate the most is when an author gets so caught up in being faithful to the text, they mangle the English language or contorted into all kinds of things that the language doesn't ordinarily do. You know what I mean. I know people will say, oh, but Jack, you see, the author in the original was contorting their language into all kinds of things that their language doesn't ordinarily do, too. Yeah, maybe sometimes that's true. Maybe you're talking about some experimental writer. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when an author, you know what? I'm already boring myself. I find the translation that I want to read, and I read it. And I don't care if other people would prefer a different one. I truly don't. I truly do not care if you read one translation and like it or love it or argue for it or whatever. And if you have a theory of translation and what it should do and that it should be faithful or it doesn't need to be faithful to the original work, or that it should do its best to be faithful, or that it should be readable, or more readable, less readable, updated, modern, or closer to the time period. I don't really care. <laughs> I'll read the one I want. If I can get something out of it, great. And if not, that's okay, too. If you want to compare translations, if that's your thing, that's great. Go ahead. If you don't want to do that, that's fine, too. To me... It's a little like arguing over the church service. I'm there to get to God. You get there your way, I'll get there mine. You argue about it if you want, about the service. That's great. It's fine with me that you do that. So I'll just say, trying to be helpful here. Everyone who reads the Russians these days has to decide, if they read the Russians in English, they have to decide if they want to read the Pevere and Volokonsky versions of whatever classics we're talking about. Those are kind of the giants in the field right now. And a lot of people rave about them, and I am not such a fan. I used to be, but then I started doing some more comparison shopping, and I realized that their versions weren't exactly what I was looking for. So I usually end up with, I own them all. <laughs> It's not necessarily what I read. I usually end up with Penguin or whatever good publisher, some good publisher is putting out. So for Brothers Karamazov, that's what I would do. But there are plenty of good translations out there, including Pavir and Volokonsky. 
P&V, as they are sometimes called. So you should sample a few at the bookstore or on Amazon and then enjoy the one that pulls you in the most. So good luck and thank you for the email. Okay. Last email for today is from Claire. Subject, thankful. Dear Jack, this is the second time during my journey through your History of Literature podcast that I've been moved to email you. As a previous emailer said, I'm sure I'm one of thousands or billions. (laughs) Wink. (laughs) Winking emoji. Who have emailed you saying something along the lines of, quote, you've impacted my reading life greatly, end quote. Or, quote, I can't thank you enough for continuing to make such a great podcast. End quote. I must admit, though, that I've unintentionally taken a hiatus from HOL in the past year, not because I've lost interest in it, but because I've lost my interest in reading, sorry, my interest for reading in general. I just graduated this spring with a BA in English, and surprisingly, I've come out of it reading less than I did before. In the past couple of years, I've found myself preferring to numb my brain with mindless sitcoms instead of reading books that I know I love. While I was dealing with this, my English professor surprised me one day by beginning class asking us if we ever felt like we just couldn't read. She went on to say that when she's gone through tough times in her life, she hasn't been able to find the willpower to read because her love of reading stems from being able to completely immerse herself into a story. And when she is struggling, having to face the reflection of herself in literature was too much to bear. Having her put into words what I'd been struggling with for so long moved me to tears, and it reassured me that one day my love of reading will return. It's been months since that's occurred, and I have only finished two or three novels since. My job has mostly turned into helping with renovations since no one's allowed to enter the building of our day program. Up until yesterday, I passed the time by listening to music, but then I saw you had released an episode about Anna Karenina. Ever since watching the film, I had always wanted to read it, but had been put off by the combination of its length and my inability to commit to anything. Listening to you and Mike talk about the experience of reading Anna Karenina, and especially having people share the experience of reading it on Twitter, was simply wonderful. As I was painting away, I remembered what it was like to be so fully engaged in a novel that time would stand still, and I would savor the words on the page instead of just breezing through them to say I've read it. Since that episode, I've listened to four more episodes of HOL while working, and it's inspired me to not immediately turn on a sitcom when I get home from work today, but rather to make myself a drink, sit on my couch, and read for the simple joy of being able to. Claire. Oh, Claire. Oh, Claire, just when I get all riled up or when I'm feeling like I'm back in the ditch with a towel over my head, a Claire comes along and reminds me of why I keep doing this thing, this podcast. Thank you so much for your email. I'm so glad to hear that you enjoyed the episode on Anna Karenina, the conversation with Mike, and that you've returned to reading once again. You can watch some sitcoms too, and that's fine. To everything, there is a season but I'm glad you're reading. I like the person I am when I'm reading, even when it's challenging, even when it's hard, even when it's hard to face that mirror. But I like who I am. I think I'm better. I think I'm more alert. I think I'm more engaged. And I can't help thinking that that is also true for others. Thank you for the email, Claire. Good luck to you and happy, happy reading. We will have the story of Ovid after this.
Publius Ovidius Naso was born in 43 BCE in Sulmo, Italy, a small town about 90 miles east of Rome. His family was respectable enough, belonging to what is sometimes called the knightly class, knightly with a K, although I've seen it more frequently described as the equestrian class or the equine class. It's the class one rung below the senatorial class. It's the sort of class where a young man is expected to be well-educated, and for Ovid, that meant he'd be sent to Rome, as he was, along with his elder brother. Once there, he was supposed to specialize in rhetoric, which would lead to some good official post, maybe some upward climbing. But Ovid quickly decided that he did not want to be a public official. He went on a trip to Athens, and traveled through Asia Minor and Sicily, and then he announced that the public service jobs just weren't going to be right for him. Instead, he wanted to write poetry. Luckily for Ovid, this was the Augustan age, and poetry was accepted, although there was also a push toward morality, and one might say that there was an, an authoritarian current in the air, too, an air of censorship, and later in life, both of these things would come back to haunt him. But at first, it was just a young life full of success. His very first work, The Amores, or as we would say, The Loves, was... Very successful. He was only 20, and he was on his way as an established poet. After that, he cranked out hit after hit, The Art of Beauty, The Art of Love, Remedies for Love, and The Letters of the Heroines. These were all about love and amorous intrigue, which was perfectly suited for the atmosphere of the day, the zeitgeist. Romans were diving into marriages and diving into affairs. They had a taste for scandal and a corresponding taste for scuttlebutt. Ovid was friends with other poets, including Horace, and he himself got married three times. The first two blew apart quickly, but the third one remained solid until his death. It even survived his banishment from Rome. When he was banished, we'll, we'll get more into the banishment later, but let's just mention this part about the marriage. When he was banished, he was more relegated than banished. His property and his money weren't confiscated, so his wife stayed in Rome. To manage it. Okay, where are we? The early love poems. Lots of love, lots of intrigue, and because Ovid was more than just a rumor monger, lots of humanity as well. I'll go ahead and insert one here so you can get a taste for Ovid. Here's a poem of his called On Fidelity. It starts out, I don't ask you to be faithful. You're beautiful, after all but just that I be spared the pain of knowing. Those are the first two lines. Let's stop there. Listen to that tone. You're beautiful, after all. I don't ask you to be faithful. You're beautiful, after all. We both know the score here. You aren't going to be faithful because you're beautiful. What's Chris Rock's line that a man is as faithful as his options? For Ovid, in Augustan Rome, the same could be said about a woman. A beautiful woman would have options, and she would only be as faithful as those options. And the poet or the speaker says, oh, fine, I'll accept that, because, hey, I get it. I get to be with this beautiful woman, and this comes with the territory that she's going to have some options. But please, try to keep it from me. It's a very modern idea. Not, hey, try to be moral, try to be pure, don't be such a whore. None of that, but hey, let's be real. You have affairs, cool, but think about me. Try not to crush me while you're doing it. Don't make me the fool. Keep me in the dark. I'd rather not know. <laughs> uh, I'd rather be the fool behind my back than be the fool to my face. The poem continues. I make no stringent demands that you should really be chaste, but only that you try to cover up. If a girl can claim to be pure, it's the same as being pure. It's only admitted vice that makes for scandal. What madness to confess by day what's wrapped in night, and what you've done in secret openly tell. The hooker about to bed some Roman off the street still locks her door first, keeping out the crowd. Will you yourself then make your sins notorious, accusing and prosecuting your own crime? Be wise, and learn at least to imitate chaste girls, and let me believe you're good, 
though you are not. Do what you do, but simply deny you ever did. There's nothing wrong with public modesty. There's a proper place for looseness. Fill it up with all voluptuousness and banish shame. But when you're done there, then put off all playfulness and leave your indiscretions in your bed. There, don't be ashamed to lay your gown aside and press your thigh against a pressing thigh. There, take and give deep kisses with your crimson lips. Let love contrive a thousand ways of passion. There, let delighted words and moans come ceaselessly and make the mattress quiver with playful motion. But put on with your clothes a face that's all discretion and let shame disavow your shocking deeds. Trick everyone. Trick me. Leave me in ignorance. Let me enjoy the life of a happy fool. Why must I see so often notes received and sent? Why must I see two imprints on your bed? Or your hair disarrayed much more than sleep could do? Why must I notice love bites on your neck? You all but flaunt your indiscretions in my face. Think of me, if not of your reputation. I lose my mind. I die. When you confess you've sinned, I break out in cold sweat from hand to foot. I love you then and hate you in vain, since I must love you. I wish then I were dead, and you were too. I won't investigate or check whatever you try to hide. I will be thankful to be deceived. But even if I catch you in the very act and look on your disgrace with my own eyes, Deny that I have seen what I have clearly seen, and my eyes will agree with what you claim. You'll win an easy prize from a man who wants to lose. Only remember to say, I didn't do it. Since you can gain your victory with one short phrase, win on account of your judge, if not your case. It's the same basic idea repeated. Trick me. You don't have to be faithful. I'd rather live in happy ignorance than have to deal with everyone knowing. You don't need to run around bragging or telling everyone or leaving all these signs for me, letting me see all the evidence. Why torture me like that? Let's have a don't ask, don't tell policy. But here's where Ovid is so good. Even with just that simple little idea repeated again and again, we get the details that drive the point home. Why must I see two imprints on your bed or your hair disarrayed much more than sleep could do? Ouch. Those are painful images coming from our cuckold, aren't they? I break out in cold sweat from hand to foot. I love you then and hate you in vain since I must love you. There's a bit of satire here. We're satirizing the idea of this guy who would rather be the happy fool. You can imagine this opening up a dialogue, right? It's Ovid. Maybe he's telling us, that this is how he feels. Maybe he's making fun of a man who feels this way. Either way, you can imagine people reading this and enjoying it. And these painful images, they hurt. We feel his pain, not just the embarrassment of being cheated on and people knowing about it, but the flaunting of it. When you are in love with someone and you know she's cheated on you, that hurts. But if she walks in and her hair is messed up, that's brutal, right? To have to see things like that, confront them face to face. It's a real, there's a real kind of moral catch here, right? Would you rather be the happy fool? Live in ignorance? Hmm. You can imagine people taking opposite sides of that. Because he says, look, the speaker here in the poem says, I'll even live with the pain of the evidence of knowing. I'll live with it as long as you deny it. Even if I see you, even if I catch you, my own eyes tell me, but there still will be something about you denying it that will help me. Lie to me. Please, it shows that you are willing to lie to the world. Even if I catch you in the act, say, I didn't do it. Don't say, I did it, you fool. Yes, you caught me, so what? You want me to lie about it now? No, I'll be honest. I won't insult you by lying. 
Ovid's taking a different tack here. He's saying, lie, please. Because that shows you still sort of care. You care enough about me to deny it. You're showing me that you will respect me enough to deny it. Some might disagree. Some might say, don't lie to me. That only makes it worse. The speaker says, no, I'd rather have you deny it because I'll take some comfort in that. That you at least are trying to help me pretend here. You're telling me it's somewhat important to you that you didn't hurt me in the first place. Win on account of your judge, he says, if not your case, right? You're guilty. We know it. If this was on the merits of your case, you lose. But the judge might have mercy. The judge might swallow your lie. It's fun to read, Ovid, right? You can see where this tells us something about Rome as well, that this was even considered, that this wasn't so clogged with religion or morality that the whole problem here was... I had this woman who was supposed to be faithful, and here she is sinning away. This is, okay, we're all sinning. This is kind of a cesspool here. Maybe cesspool is the wrong word. This is, this is just how things are. Beautiful people are hooking up with other beautiful people. Fine. What does that mean when we're also trying to be monogamous? It's fun to read, Ovid. Let's do one more. This one is about impotence. Here's a translation by Christopher Marlowe from the 16th century, one of Shakespeare's great contemporaries. This was Marlowe when he was at Cambridge, studying away, translating Ovid. So go listen to our Marlowe episode if you haven't already. It's a fun one. Marlowe's a fascinating guy. Okay, so Marlowe translates this one, the title has come down to us as Either She Was Foul or Her Attire Was Bad. Now, this poem <laughs> this poem isn't often cited as one of Ovid's best, but I wanted to include it anyway for you because it's the Marlovian translation, but also because it shows what I mean by Ovid being fun. The tone here, the guy next to you at the bar, the old best friend who gives you a call, the guy who's honest and forthright and funny, the guy you love running into, because he always has something funny going on in his life, and he's humorous and self-deprecating, but he's not a total sad sack either. That's the tone Ovid strikes, and it's a tone that appealed to the Elizabethans years, some 1,500, 1,600 years later. Think about Shakespeare, young Shakespeare reading these lines and his imagination getting all fired up, not just about poetry, but about the way poetry can dive right in and Explore the psychology of something so human and yet kind of taboo as well. There's a lot of insight in, in this poem, which tells the story of a guy who tries to have sex with a woman and can't, and then he recounts just what happened. Either she was foul or her attire was bad, by Ovid, translated by Christopher Marlowe. Either she was foul or her attire was bad. Or she was not the wench I wished to have had. Idly I lay with her as if I loved not, And like a burden grieved the bed that moved not. Yet though both of us performed our true intent, Yet I could not cast anchor where I meant. She on my neck her ivory arms did throw, her arms far whiter than the Scythian snow, and eagerly she kissed me with her tongue, and under mine her wanton thigh she flung. Yea, and she soothed me up and called me sir, and used all speech that might provoke and stir. Yet, like as if cold hemlock I had drunk, it mocked me, hung down the head, and sunk like a dull cipher, or rude block I lay, or shade or body was I, who can say, what will my age do, age I cannot shun, when in my prime my force is spent and done? I blush that being youthful, hot, and lusty, I prove neither youth nor man, but old and rusty. <laughs> Goes on like this. The poet talks about his previous sexual experiences. He's done it a lot, he wants us to know. With Corinna, he did it nine times before daylight. And yet here he is, drooping away. He gives a few reasons 
speculates about a few things which don't resonate with his partner at all. She keeps trying and she keeps waiting. And he's thinking, why? 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 Why me? Why this? Why now? He thinks about the nature of love, it charms, it sex, it agonizes over the situation until finally he gets back to the narrative where he says, Yet, notwithstanding, like one dead, it lay, drooping more than a rose pulled yesterday. Now, when he should not jet, he bolts upright and craves his task and seeks to be at fight. Lie down with shame and see thou stir no more, seeing thou wouldst deceive me as before. Thou cousinest me, by thee surprised am I, and bide sore loss with endless infamy. Nay, more, the wench did not disdain a wit to take it in her hand and play with it. But when she saw it would by no means stand, but still drooped down, regarding not her hand, Why mockst thou me? she cried. Or, being ill, who bade thee lie down here against thy will? Either thou art witch, with blood of frogs new dead, or jaded camest thou from some other bed. With that, her loose gown on, from me she cast her, in skipping out her naked feet much graced her. And, lest her maid should know of this disgrace, to cover it, spilt water on the place. Some funny stuff there from Ovid and from Marlowe in his lively translation. A lot of it is about how to fall in love, what to do when you're in love, how to attract your lover, how to play hard to get, and so on. That's what we see in Ovid. It's kind of a cartoon version of love, almost. It's like a political cartoon. Let's put it that way. Sort of satirical about what's going on in society, the mores. It's a little exaggerated, but it also reflects its times. The Augustan age was full of this stuff. People tried to stamp it out, and Augustus himself condemned it officially. All of these loose morals, even as his own family was right in the thick of all the gossip and rumors and affairs and backstabbing and so on. We'll touch on that a little more later. But first, we should actually... Let me say one more thing about Ovid, this friend at the bar who is charming and... and smart and a great storyteller, sometimes he goes too far, just like the guy at the bar. Maybe the guy, one drink too many. Sometimes he's a little too in your face, a little too aggressive in what he wants you to hear and how he wants you to think. This is a product of coming 2,000 years later, of course, and bringing a modern sensibility to what Ovid is telling us about this. You, you need to read this with some modern perspective. This isn't exactly going to be a how-to guide for you. This doesn't translate into, it's not one of those books, what are those handles, pickup books. Don't read this like a, like he's a pickup artist. Once in a while, you might think, okay, well, this works. This tells us something about sex or about relationships or about men and women. This part rings true. More often you think, okay, this is history. This is telling us about ancient Rome. This is telling us about Ovid as an individual. Or this is a negative example. This one's interesting because we don't think this way. This was where he was a little blinded by his times. Okay. So let's talk about Ovid's metamorphoses or changes or transformations or transfigurations, which was another hugely influential book, maybe his most influential. It's a 15-book catalog that runs through Greek and Roman mythology, with mythology used a little loosely here because it also covers historical figures and runs right up to recent history, recent for Ovid, including the deification of Caesar. The end of the final book talks about Augustus himself, praising him and saying that the poem has earned Augustus' immortality. Throughout the books, the characters undergo transformations. That's That's a big theme, obviously. That's where we get the title. Something like 250 different myths are mentioned, and a lot of those, we see these transformations. 
The book also covers things like the formation of the world, the flood, and all the gods and their lovers, the abductions slash rapes that so frequently occurred in these stories of the gods, the marriages, the exploits of heroes like Achilles. You'll find in here centaurs and Greek philosophers like Pythagoras and the story of Daedalus's flight. Pygmalion is in here, Orpheus. Like I said, if you love myths and the stories of myths, this is the book for you. You might start with Ted Hughes's book, his famous translation, Tales from Ovid. But after my little stepping aside when it comes to translations, I'll just say go ahead and find the translation you want and start reading. And if it's not working for you, try something else. There's a lot to Ovid. A lot of different angles you can use to come into Ovid. I don't have the right answer. I don't have the best one, the first one. The influences Ovid had are extraordinary. That's another way to come at Ovid. Find your favorite author in history and see what he or she thought of Ovid. Chances are there's some Ovid in there. Montaigne was a huge fan, saying, quote, The first taste I had for books came to me from my pleasure in the fables of the metamorphoses of Ovid. For at about seven or eight years of age, I would steal away from any other pleasure to read them, end quote. Cervantes was inspired by them, used them to help him formulate and launch Don Quixote, Marlowe, I said, and already Shakespeare, both fans. John Dryden translated them as well. Delacroix painted Ovid. Baudelaire wrote a long essay about him. We've skipped over the troubadours of the Middle Ages, Dante, Petrarch, Chaucer, Ruiz, Botticelli. Following the Elizabethans, we have Milton and Russians, starting with Pushkin. They all loved Ovid. We see James Joyce naming his first main character as Stephen Dedalus, an homage to Ovid. And if that weren't enough, Joyce quotes from Book 8 of Metamorphoses in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Osip Mendelstam was influenced by Ovid, and so was Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan has cited different tales from the Metamorphoses numerous times in his works, sometimes using the language itself from Ovid. Okay, the influences are really too numerous to catalog. That's just to give you a taste. So let's hear a little from Metamorphoses. This is the Ted Hughes translation of Midas, the Midas story. We'll pick it up at the point where Bacchus has offered Midas a wish. Whatever you want, you can have Midas. And Midas, of course, wishes for everything he touches to be turned to gold. Here's the story in Ovid slash Ted Hughes's words. Midas said, Here is my wish. Let whatever I touch become gold. Yes, gold, the finest, the purest, the brightest. Bacchus gazed at the king and sighed gently. He felt pity, yet his curiosity was intrigued to see how such stupidity would be punished. So he granted the wish, then stood back to watch. The Phrygian king returned through the garden, eager to test the power, yet apprehensive that he had merely dreamed and now was awake, where alchemy never works. He broke a twig from a low branch of oak. The leaves turned to heavy gold as he stared at them, and his mouth went dry. He felt his brain move strangely, like a muscle. He picked up a stone and weighed it in his hand as it doubled its weight, then doubled it again and became a bright yellow. He brushed his hand over a clump of grass. The blades stayed bent, soft ribbons of gold foil. A ripe ear of corn was crisp and dry and light as he plucked it, but a heavy slug of gold intricately braided as he rolled it between his palms. It was then that a cold thought seemed to whisper. He had wanted to chew the milky grains, but none broke chaffily free from their pockets. The ear was gold, its grain inedible, inaccessibly solid with the core. He frowned. With the frown on his face, he reached for a hanging apple. With a slight twist, he took the sudden weight no longer so happily. This was a fruit. He made no attempt to bite as he pondered its color. Almost inadvertently, he stroked the door pillars as he entered the palace, pausing to watch the brilliant yellow suffuse the dark stone. 
He washed his hands under flowing water at a fountain. Already a hope told him that the gift might wash away, as waking up will wash out a nightmare. But the water that touched him coiled into the pool below as plumes of golden smoke, settling heavily in a silt of gold atoms. Suddenly his vision of transmuting his whole kingdom to gold made him sweat. It chilled him as he sat at the table and reached for a roasted bird. The carcass toppled from his horrified fingers into his dish with a clunk, as if he had picked up a table ornament. He reached for bread, but could not break the plaque of gold that resembled a solid puddle, smelted from ore. Almost in terror now, he reached for the goblet of wine. Taking his time, he poured in water, swirled the mix in what had been translucent rhinoceros horn, but was already common and commoner metal. He set his lips to the cold rim, and others, dumbfounded by what they had already seen, were aghast when they saw the wet gold shine on his lips. And as he lowered the cup, saw him mouthing gold, spitting gold mush that had solidified like gold cinders. He got up reeling from his golden chair as if poisoned. He fell on his bed, face down, eyes closed from the golden heavy fold of his pillow. He prayed to the God who had given him the gift to take it back. I have been a fool. Forgive me, Bacchus. Forgive the greed that made me so stupid. Forgive me for a dream that had not touched the world, where gold is truly gold and nothing but. Save me from my own shallowness, where I shall drown in gold and be buried in gold. Nothing can live, I see, in a world of gold. Hmm. You will have to read the rest of that for yourself to find out what happens, because we need to turn to Ovid's life now. Ovid was proud of his success and addressed his critics by saying, go ahead, write your own verse, but you'd better hurry because I write pretty fast myself. So by the time you write something you think is better than mine, you'll have a lot more of my poems to contend with. And I'm pretty good, so good luck. That's a paraphrase, but it gives you a sense of Ovid and his confidence, his, the figure he cut as he Walked around Rome. He was writing a lot. We have a lot of it. Some of it we don't have. Not everything survived. He wrote a tragedy that was apparently quite good, Medea, but it didn't survive. And he wrote six books about the festivals, one for each month, January to June. He meant to write all 12, but this was cut off because he was exiled. Why? Why did this man, this poet, who dedicated works to Augustus, who was popular, who was well-regarded, who was from a decent family, who was famous, why was he banished from Rome? We do not know. We don't know. Augustus never gave an official reason. He cited one of his works, one of the love poems, as the official reason, but he didn't give the real reason. Ovid himself somewhat cryptically said, I was banished for a poem and an error. This little phrase, a poem and a mistake, has triggered all kinds of speculation. Think about this. Ovid was 50 years old, the most famous poet of his time. The emperor himself banished him. He didn't do it through a judge. He didn't do it through the Senate. He just issued the proclamation and kicked him out, sent him to Thomas where Ovid lived for ten years, the last ten years of his life, writing poems about sadness. What was the poem and what was the mistake? Once, Ovid says that he didn't do anything illegal. He says at one point that his mistake was worse than murder, but it wasn't illegal. That's intriguing, too. What can that be? Insulting the emperor? Finding out something he shouldn't have? Offending public morals, what else would make an emperor send a poet off into the hinterlands? But we should note that the emperor didn't have him killed, and he didn't take away all of his money. So there was some respect there, or some fear as to what a cruel punishment might have meant for Augustus. Maybe there would have been a backlash, maybe he was worried about that, or maybe he just didn't want to be too cruel. Maybe he didn't view the offense as being that bad. 
but it adds to the intrigue. Because if this was something he had learned, something he had seen, then why would Augustus take the chance? Why would he let him live in exile and keep writing? Ovid adds to the intrigue by saying that his mistake was caused by stupidity, that it was done without premeditation, and that it was because he saw something he shouldn't have. And he says, hey, I know the emperor knows this, that it wasn't intentional, that it was just a stupid mistake, because he didn't have me killed. He didn't take away my citizenship. He knows this was just a stupid mistake on my part, or I would be dead so, what do scholars think? Most people think that the poem he refers to in his poem and a mistake formulation was his poem, The Art of Love. It was seven years, written seven years before his exile. So that's a little curious. Some people have said, why would he be banished seven years later? Other people have pointed out also Although it was a little obscene, it was kind of in line with what others were writing in the, at the time, and they weren't exiled. And maybe it was the... So maybe it was more of an excuse that Augustus could use when he actually had something else in mind. It's like job performances. Have you ever noticed that? There's some little job thing that you do. Some accident happens, some mistake and you think this is exactly the kind of thing they use when they want to fire you. People do this all the time. It goes on everyone's record. And it's most of the time it's not a big deal, but when they do need a pretext, there it is. Augustus was publicly calling for an improved morality in Rome. And here's the most famous poet, the author of a somewhat risque work, which is not exactly the paragon of morality. So maybe it was that. Maybe it was Augustus saying, I got to show something here. It's like Bill Clinton going to preside over, trying to show he was a law and order candidate. He went to preside over an execution. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was Augustus saying, man, I've let things go. I don't know how to stop these people. These crazy affairs, this culture we've got going here. I don't know how to stop it, but maybe I can score a few political points if I banish Ovid. Why not? What have I got to lose? But there seems to be something more. This speculation doesn't fully satisfy. What was the mistake? Ovid says a poem and an error. What was the error? People have interpreted that, they've tended to think that it was separate from the poem, that it wasn't that the poem itself was the mistake, but there was a a poem, and then there was a mistake. Remember, he also said the mistake was that he saw something he shouldn't have, and here's where things get interesting, although they also get very speculative. What are some theories for what he might have seen? One is that Ovid had discovered that Augustus had committed incest with either his daughter, Julia the Elder, or his granddaughter, Julia the Younger. Or that Ovid had seen these ladies commit adultery with someone else, or even that he himself had committed adultery with them. Who knows? That's a really wide set of theories. You have to imagine that if he'd done something truly offensive or seen something truly dangerous, the emperor might have had him killed. But maybe Ovid saw a kiss or a glance or he himself made a flirtatious comment or something like that. Maybe that's what set off Augustus, enraged him enough to send Ovid to the Black Sea. Sir, you take too many liberties with your tongue. Something like that. Ovid sees a a glance makes a joke. Who knows? There are some political theories, too. Maybe Ovid was hanging around the wrong crowd. Maybe he went to some meetings with some people who were opposed to the emperor. Augustus still had a few enemies, a few that thought that succession should have gone through a different line. Maybe Ovid's mistake was to 
stumble into one of those conspiracy meetings or be a little too close to some of those conspirators or participate himself in something subversive or mildly threatening. Maybe Ovid was pointing out that authoritarianism was bad. He was such a humanist, he might have come across that way. Some of that could have been a threat also to Augustus. Some have speculated that maybe Ovid wasn't really exiled. Maybe this was all just a fiction. I think that's about as credible as the Paul is dead theory, but some scholars spend a lot of time on this. There are a few historical facts that fit into it, into this theory. Ovid was playful that he had invented some characters before, some personas. Hmm. In the end, we don't know. We just don't know. Maybe not knowing is better. It certainly has given scholars and poets and fans of Ovid a lot to think about and wonder about. We wouldn't care so much about Ovid if he didn't come across as our best friend when he was young and cocky. And that's the sad part. His poetry, when he's in exile, becomes so sad. He's lost. He's forlorn. He wishes he was in Rome. It puts a a melancholy end on an otherwise rocket-like career full of success. He portrays himself as old and sick. He claims he meant no harm. He praises the emperor. He becomes the sad sack he never really was in his earlier poems. It's tough to read sometimes. He says, exile has ruined my poetic talents. I used to be a genius. I'm not here in Thomas. Not anymore. One point he says, quote, Where's the joy in stabbing your steel into my dead flesh? There's no place left where I can be dealt fresh wounds. End quote. I actually kind of like that. I know. Is that bad? No, I wish Ovid had had a happy life, but this 10-year period for me is kind of better in a way. I'm not sure that we needed more of Ovid's myths or festivals. His confident poetry. Some people think the festivals were written in an attempt to get out of punishment, that he saw the writing on the wall during those seven years. He knew what was coming, and he wanted something to praise the emperor. So would that be better if he had stayed in Rome and just wrote hosannas in praise of the emperor? I don't know that those would have been better. I kind of like the life ending in mystery. I like the sadness. You remember, I'm the bittersweet guy bitter and sweet. I like my coffee dark. I like my music moody, and I like thunderstorms as well as sunshine. If Ovid were all success, I think I'd like him less. I like the exile. I like reading the poems where he's agonizing over his fate. I like reading the poems where he's not, his youthful poems, knowing that this is what he had in store for him. I don't think that's so mean of me. My attitude toward Ovid doesn't change whether he had a happy life or not. He lived 2,000 years ago. But his unhappy life makes mine a little deeper. And I'm grateful for that. And we are left with the beautiful poetic irony. One of those moments that life supplies for us. Those rhymes that we see when we look at history which is that Ovid, the great poet of transformations, was himself forced to undergo this change from the swaggering poet at the heart of Rome, a man who would not have traded his life or his position for any others, to one who lived in miserable exile, a man who would have traded all he had to be a Roman commoner, for a day. Okay, there we go. I took some liberties there at the end, but you know how it is. It's literature and it's history, and sometimes the theories and the speculation are as good as the history. They're part of the history. Speculation about Ovid has a long and spectacular pedigree. We love our exiled poets. There's something in there that reminds us that poetry has some power. Speaking of power, my thanks to my emailers today who always have the power to lift my spirits. We will be back on Thursday, hopefully, with another installment in the look at Forgotten Women of Literature, A Trip to China. Wow, so subscribe. 
won't want to miss that. We are traveling around, aren't we? We're racking up some frequent flyer miles here in our little dungeon. <laughs> our flying dungeon capable of taking us from Mesopotamia to Rome to China. You can learn more about the show at historyofliterature.com or by heading over to the Podglomerate Podcast Network which you can find at www.thepodglomerate.com or by looking at LitHub and LitHub Radio, which we're also teamed up with now, trying to get you the content you need and deserve the content you deserve. Gosh darn it. I am Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Pod Glomer, a sonic universe.